Uh, we are in um, the book of Judges, and if, if you remember from last week, do a little bit of a recap, that the book of Judges is a really messy book, and it's messy in terms of its structure. It's not, uh, not really structured in a coherent way, like a, like a one narrative. This anonymous author is, is pretty much piecing together these hero narratives, uh, these narratives of judges that uh, operate in different places at different times as the nation of Israel continues to spiral more and more downhill and away from God and into idolatry. And then the last part of the book of Judges is going to be this kind of real dark uh, foreboding of, of what it means that the people have gotten this far away from God and that their immorality has, has just accelerated into places that ought not or, or would be shocking um, to consider for God's people. And so this is the structure and it's messy. It's also messy in the sense that it's a book that has uh, a lot of bloodshed in it. So if you're watching it as a movie, you're going to see that this is one of the more violent books of, of, of the Bible, that, that there is a lot of death, a lot of killing, uh, a lot of wars going back and forth. There's just a lot of bloodshed. So it's messy that way as well. And so when we jump into historical narrative, we're learning about what the story is in Scripture, what the book of the Bible is, what kind of role that plays in the development of the nation of Israel. And then we also want to, towards the end, find uh, principles or things that we can learn or take away from this and, and actually see in our own life. But obviously that's different than, than killing Philistines or, or, or some of the other things that we might see. So we're really trying to grab hold of those threads that actually give us a handle for what's going on. So the cycle of judges, we got that picture. This is kind of what keeps happening, that the Israelites are with God, walking with God. They begin to forget God or uh, grow complacent which leads them to walk away or commit idolatry to seek other gods or to worship other gods, uh, to sin uh, and engage in things they shouldn't. There's a discipline that comes because they are now um, under the power or the authority or the rule of some foreign country or, or tribe. And, and in this kind of oppressed place, they then cry out to God that, God, would you send a deliverer? God, would you, would you save us from the situation? And then God sends a judge. God brings salvation in the form of these leaders, uh, men, and we're going to talk in a couple weeks about Deborah, a woman. But God sends salvation in the form of these judges that are not judges in the sense we normally think about with a hood or a gavel, but judges that, that function also as commanders or military leaders over their tribes and their people. And the interesting thing to note here is that the discipline is the fruit of sin itself and that the judgment of God is the salvation of God. When God sends judges, it's not to punish. When God sends judges, it's to liberate. And when you see the word judgment or God's um, justice in scripture a lot, we, we often get confused because we have such a negative or harsh connotation around this idea of judgment. But like we sang earlier in the song, um, it's, really, it's really the sad reality of not choosing God that is the pain 
that is in some sense us reaping what we sow and that when God steps in, he's liberating us out of the problem of sin. Um, So what does that do to our own understanding of the sinfulness of others, that idea that um, I feel bad for you Um, or we should feel bad for one another when we're sinning because we're in a place like the prodigal son that you don't want to be in. It's a place where you wrestle and cry out and say, how do I change my life? How do I fix my life? It's when you cry out, though, and move back towards God that God will meet you there in his faithfulness and and his judgment, his salvation uh, comes in. I want to show you two pictures, two maps. One is the northern uh, area of Israel. This is where, in the time of Judges, the northern tribes um, kind of found land and, and uh, set up. Um, anybody have a better word for set up? Planted, existed, lived? Lived? Settled. Settled's a good word. Um, these are where the, the northern tribes settled. And then part B of this, you can see where the southern tribes settled. So Benjamin uh, towards the top. Uh, of the Dead Sea, and then Judah written kind of sideways just to the left of the Dead Sea, and that's going to be where you have Jerusalem. So the tribe of Judah really ends up being uh, this southern kingdom later on, and the rest of the tribes end up being a northern kingdom. So uh, as we're looking at this, we're going to take today, last week we talked about that cycle of judges, and I called it the Sermon Law This week, we're going to talk about uh, grace, and we're jumping all the way to the back of the book of Judges to grab the last story, uh, which is Samson. And Samson's probably one of the better-known judges and and certainly one of the better-known Old Testament figures that we have. Uh, He's the last of the judges. He's uh, one of four judges that is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 11, if you remember, there's this kind of... um, rolling example, if, if you will, of the great people of faith, these great examples and the prices they paid, and then kind of this encouragement to what a life of faith might look like. And Samson gets counted in that hall of fame, uh, if you will, in Hebrews 11. So uh, the story of Samson is also interesting because it's where we begin to see the Philistines in scriptures. So the Philistines become a big part of our Old Testament consciousness because it's the people that David, that Saul first was warring against. Uh, uh, Goliath was a Philistine. David comes on the scene and defeats Goliath. And then throughout David's reign, David is, is kind of battling with the Philistines. In fact, before he takes over as king, when he's running from Saul and he's, he's pretending to be a madman to try and escape Uh, Saul's grasp, he actually goes and sets up residence in a Philistine town, uh, kind of like a a city of of refuge, if you will. And so this whole story of Samson begins to bring in these people known as the Philistines. Now, I want to give a little bit of a history to them because it's relevant. So uh, a couple more maps. Um, But this map that kind of shows the routes of what are known as the Sea Peoples. So the sea peoples coming from the Aegean Sea, uh, predominantly by water, some by land, end up coming and inhabiting the coastal areas uh, of is what we would call Israel now and, and above Egypt. They were never able to defeat Egypt. 
and, and then some of the northern uh, coast of Africa, but they're known as the Sea Peoples, and they either found or, or were the first ones to be able to smelt iron uh, right about the time they left. Uh, uh, so either one of the first, but arguably the first, these people known as the Sea People, they end up landing on the coast of Israel there. And so if we go to the next map, um, these people, the Sea Peoples, were known as Philistines, okay? And so the Philistines are on the coast, and this people group ushers in. Uh, if they did not invent it, they certainly did the most to develop iron and really kicked off what is known as the Iron Age, okay, which is fascinating. Prior to this, uh, bronze only, and, and now you have the Iron Age. So they're along the shore. Uh, they're the Philistines. They're with iron. Later on, when the Romans would come, the Romans set up shop on the shore, again, sending ships from Rome. So Pontius Pilate, when he was in Jerusalem, which is inland, was only there because it was the feast. So he was going there to keep the peace. Normally at Caesarea Maritima, over on the coast, is where he would reside. So the Romans came and basically interacted with that coast. And so they named this land after the people that were around them, the Philistines, and the name was Palestine. So the word Palestine comes from the Romans, uh, which is a reference to the Philistines. So this map actually shows all of the engagement between uh, Judah and Israel with the Philistines over time. So you see how this kind of warring back and forth between the coast and then the rest of the country. Um, what's the next slide? Just because I don't know what it is. Okay, it's relevant. Um, so 1 Samuel uh, 13, 19 through 22. So this is going past the period of Judges, and it's talking about the time of, of King Saul. Okay, so uh, read. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords and spears or spears. So all Israel had to go down to the Philistines, uh, down from the hillside to the, to the coastal areas, to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. They wouldn't actually let somebody with the knowledge of working iron go reside in Israel. They forced them to come to their blacksmiths. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes, and for repointing goads. So on the, on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul uh, and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son, Jonathan, had them. Um, so that word go, goads is really interesting. So the idea of, of goading an animal that has a tough hide and having a point that's needed on the end to kind of move them and that you go down and have those goads repointed, if you will, by the blacksmiths. The word goads only shows up three times in scriptures, uh, once here and once in Ecclesiastes, this, this kind of vague idea of being goaded. And then it shows up when Jesus talks to Paul, when Paul loses his sight, uh, Saul at that time, but when Saul is persecuting Christians, run into, uh, runs into Jesus in the desert, and Jesus says, um, 
Why or why are you um, persecuting me? Why are you kicking against the goads? This idea that, that there's a, a goad or that spiritually speaking, God had been kind of pushing on Paul and saying, you, you need to heed here how I'm trying to steer you. And that Paul was actually resisting that until Jesus intervenes. Uh, I love that story because in my own testimony, I, I have that experience of, of kind of resisting what I felt was, was being pushed in on me spiritually until there was a big experience um, in the form of a broken jaw uh, that, that kind of helped me then go, oh, um, what, am I, what am I supposed to be hearing? Uh, I can't talk very well. Um, so maybe I should listen, right? But so this is the kind of the story of Paul. And this is kind of this interesting thing that we don't really take into account when we're thinking of the battles with the Israelites, with Saul, with, with David, against these people, the Philistines. You actually have arms races and different technology, if you will, happening in the midst of all that. So this is what's going on. Samson begins kind of these battles, these skirmishes with the sea people uh, who become the Philistines, who become the Palestine, uh, the people of Palestine or where we get the name Palestine. So this story is massive in our thinking. It takes up three whole chapters in the book of Judges. Uh, nothing else takes up that much space. It's unique in the book of Judges because we kind of get the whole of Samson's life like where he came from, the angel of the Lord showing up to his mom and his dad, and then his growth, and then these really interesting stories about his later life. That's why it's been such a uh, kind of uh, significant thing that has shown up in Hollywood. I, I, the 1949 movie, got a picture of that for you. Um, Cecil B. DeMille uh, put this on. It was a pretty rowdy, provocative movie for the four, you know, 1949 but, but it's, uh, it's also really funny because it's like Ben-Hur meets, meets um, bad set designs meets, I don't know, Samson and the... Uh, I, anyways, um, but so this story becoming massive uh, as we move forward. So because it's three chapters, I'm going to kind of abridge the story for you and we might show a couple pictures along the way. But so uh, the angel of the Lord, as, as the angel of the Lord has been doing in the book of Judges, comes to, to somebody and it comes to uh, Samson's mom and says, you're going to be with child and this child is to be set apart unto me from birth. In other words, it's going to be a Nazarite, like take a, a Nazarite vow. So you yourself during your pregnancy can't drink this, have to do these certain kinds of things. And then your son from birth has to kind of follow into this. He has to live a certain kind of way and never cut his hair because he is to be set apart unto the Lord for God's purposes and to have this Nazarite vow. So Samson comes along uh, and is born. His mom kind of does this, commits him unto the Lord to become one of these judges, one of these saviors. And he grows into this phenomenal strength. Uh, obviously has a lot of hair, uh, a lot of strength. And, and is that guy that never really does what he's supposed to do. Um, so, so Samson is the guy who whatever he knows somehow is not going to fully do that. So he finds a girl over in the Philistine area that he wants to marry. And his parents are like, can't you find someone from our own people? Like, 
Why would you go and, and marry someone from the enemy? And so finally, he drags them into this. They go down, they meet uh, the gal, and the, the Philistines are helping him create a wedding party. It's like uh, rent-a-groomsman, uh, Philistine variety, like 30 of them. And, and so he's kind of doing this whole thing. And, and then they, they leave. Um, uh, before this happens, you've got this lion that comes out at, at Samson, and he grabs it by the jaws and kind of rips it in two. And that's a pretty good party trick. So if you can master that, um, I highly encourage you. You get a lot of attention for it. But when he was going back down, he, he found that there was uh, honey in it because these bees had put a hive in there. And so he scooped up some of the honey, ate some of the honey, which is interesting for two reasons. One, it's in a carcass of a dead animal, and that's unclean. So you already see that, that this, the kind of Nazarite vows that, that Samson was supposed to take, that he's not really taking it fully serious. The second thing that comes from this honey and this carcass is when he gets to kind of the, the pre-wedding thing where, where all the family's being met, he, uh, he makes this riddle up for no reason. He just wants to have fun. This is his personality. He wants to do these riddles to toy with people. And he comes up with this riddle and says, if you figure out this riddle, I'll get 30 brand new sets of clothing for these groomsmen that you've found me. And back in those days, like one set of clothing, you know, might last you half your life. I mean, so extremely valuable. And he thought he was being really coy. Well, they lean on the girl and, and threaten her and say, you got to find out what this riddle means. And so uh, she goes, poor thing, vulnerable. She goes, finds out the riddle because she knows how to push Samson's buttons. Okay, and Samson tells her the answer to the riddle. She tells the people, and he gets really angry, goes off, kills 30 Philistines, takes their cloaks, uh, gives them to these people, kind of runs away, and he's really upset. Um, then he comes back sometime later, but they'd, they'd, they'd seen that Samson ran off, so they gave this gal to one of those groomsmen uh, to be his wife. So Samson shows back up, and realizes that they've given her away. And so now he's really angry. And he goes and ties a bunch of foxes' tails together and puts torches in it and sends them off, burns all the stuff of the Philistines and creates this real geopolitical drama. Out of this drama um, comes uh, the rest of the Israelites. Imagine this, a judge has been raised up to save you. But now you guys are so afraid that the, uh, that the Philistines are going to take out their anger on you that you come and you bind up this person, your savior, and you hand him over to those Philistines. So this happens. Samson's handed over by his own people and uh, with these kind of bound up in these vines and he just shirks them off and then kills. Uh, he, finds, he finds the jawbone of a donkey he grabs it, and then he strikes down a 1,000 men. So if you really actually put this into real time, how long does it, does it take to bludgeon to death a 1,000 men with a jawbone? And we begin to see this incredible strength. Enter Delilah, the third woman in Samson's life. 
And this, this strange game that Samson plays of, of riddles and, and being toyed with and taking things complacently shows up in all of these relationships. And we get to this woman, Delilah, another Philistine woman. And so Samson has her eye, uh, and, or she has his eye, and she keeps being told by the leaders of her community, you need to find out the secret to his strength. By the way, when we get to Delilah, there's something really interesting. This story in the history of Christianity has been handed down as, as a story about this trickster, this, this woman, this, uh, this woman of ill repute who somehow uses these powers she has to, to woo over or manipulate this, this judge or this man of God and this, this kind of figure of Delilah emerges in literature and in paintings as you go forward in time, which paints her as the deceiver. Does that make sense? Um, and, and then you get this strange thing like poor Samson, he just, he just was weak. You know, but, but this Delilah, back in the fraternity days, there, guys used to, when a, when, a, when a guy really liked a girl, you know, and, and she didn't really like him back, you know, and, but he just was captive by his love of this woman that could turn his head whichever way, but she didn't really like him. They would call her a Delilah. Like, man, that's his Delilah, right? So there's this interesting thing about projecting it onto the woman. Actually, as you read this story, all of these women that, that Samson ends up taking a liking for are in very vulnerable states. One of them, they, the, they threatened to burn her, her parents, her family alive if she didn't get information uh, out of Samson. Delilah, it, it says that these leaders of the community kept coming to her and saying that this is the destroyer of our community. So you, as, as a member of this community, owe us, you have this obligation to try to help find out the secret of his strength. And what you really see is that Samson, um, Samson's weakness was Samson. Samson's weakness was that he took everything too lightly. Samson's weakness was that he didn't learn from his mistakes. Uh, Samson's weakness was Samson's responsibility. So I think we have to get beyond this this projection onto this woman and, and what it can do if we're not careful for our perception of women in general because certainly historically it is fed into some, some of the darker parts of that. Um, so Delilah, this is the famous passage, three times she asks, he says, tie me up with these vines. Uh, she does uh, and, and then he falls asleep. She calls in the Philistines and Simon, uh, Simon Samson just snaps him and then she's like, you're toying with me. I'm, I'm really offended. How did you do this? Come on now, tell me the real thing. And he says, if you take my hair and braid it into a loom, for like a cloth loom, that will weaken my strength. And notice that he's going from things that are, are casual, like, oh, just tie me up, knowing that he's strong, to bind me with my hair. He's moving more and more to naming what is actually true and what he is under a vow not to name. He's beginning to play with fire. Samson is the epitome of if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Does that make sense? Um, so Samson kind of does this, and they call in the Philistines, and, and Samson now breaks free once again. And then lastly, he tells Delilah, I've been a Nazarite with this Nazarite vow since birth. 
And if you cut my hair, if you shave my hair, my head has never had uh, shears touch it. If you shave my head, my strength will go. So as the story goes, uh, she coaxes him to fall asleep in her lap and then calls in uh, the Philistines. They shave his head and his strength is gone. So a couple of pictures just from the history of art. Uh, the first one here is a medallion that was found as the centerpiece of a floor that was uncovered. And if you can see it, it's, it's a picture of a man and a lion fighting a lion. And it was from this time in the Book of Judges. And many archaeologists believe that it, it harkens back to the story uh, of the one that fought the lion, Samson. Uh, next picture, uh, these are Samson's journeys that I just told you about. So interestingly, we still have the city Gaza. Uh, if you went to, um, if you went over to Israel now, you have the West Bank, which is Palestine. Then you have Israel proper, and then you have this area all by itself down there, which is Gaza. And Gaza goes all the way back to this period of time was begun by the Philistines. They had uh, four uh, capital cities that that were spread throughout. So these are Samson's journey. So when he went to the wedding, as the top line. Uh, and then he comes to the city gates of Hebron, kind of the bottom line. But these are his adventures into the land of the Philistines. Uh, the next picture is after he's captured, they immediately put out his eyes. This is Tisson, uh, who did this picture, this rendering. This is the way a mill would have been done in Samson's time. Also, up, up till the time of Jesus, you would have had a mill like this, normally a donkey being tied and just walking in a circle. And if you can picture it, that wheel just kind of turns in place. But as it does, it grinds anything beneath it, right? So this is what a mill would have been like. Uh, his eyes put out, and, and as a slave in this prison, Samson now is doing this. But the book of Judges would tell us that as he was doing this, his hair began to grow. So um, we can pick it up in chapter 16 right here. Um, chapter 16 and verse 21. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza binding him with bronze shackles. They set him in a grinding grain in the prison, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And the people saw him. They praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in the high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us, to mock him. So they called Samson out of prison, and, and he performed for them. And when they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple. So two large pillars that hold all the weight of this temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. 
and let me with a blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back up and they, they buried him between Zorah and Eshtel in the tomb of Manoah, his father. And he had led Israel 20 years. So a uh, couple more pictures. Uh, I, this is Rembrandt. This is at the wedding feast. By the way, in his century, nobody touched the theme of Samson more than Rembrandt did. Uh, painters all throughout history have done it. If you go to the National Gallery, one of the more famous one, uh, ones is being hung or displayed by Peter Paul Rubens. It's not fit for church, so um, you'll just have to Google it on your phone right now. But, but uh, it's, it's the Samson and Delilah uh, picture or story. Uh, Rembrandt hit every aspect of this story. He just came back to it over and over to explore its motifs. The next picture, a very famous one of, and it's dark, but if you can see Samson's eyes being put out. So the soldier has a fistful of his beard and is gouging his eyes out with the tip of a spear. Uh, and again, Rembrandt. So this, this mythical figure, if you will, almost showing up in the book of Judges, this tragic figure, uh, and person who was wayward, complacent, but somehow in the end, the story tells us God responds and in his faithfulness allows, uh, allows Samson to fulfill his calling in freeing the people of Israel. So how do we apply this? Uh, two things, and then we're done. Um, the first one is just simply this. Um, Complacency. So we've got it on the screen for you, but lessons from the life of Samson. Uh, number one is complacency. I had somebody ask me last week with the cycle of judges that, that kind of goes round and round. So if you can show the cycle of judges again, but this walking with God and then forgetting God and then walking away and being in sin and then experiencing the punishment that sin is, crying out to God and then being delivered. Somebody came up to me and they were like, how do you break the cycle? How do you break the cycle? And I said, um, there's really two things, operative things about the cycle. Is that uh, if you can catch yourself early, it, catches, it, it keeps you from crying out later. If you can catch yourself early, it'll keep you from crying out later. In other words, if you want to break the cycle, you break the cycle when you're complacent, when you're beginning to forget or not take it serious, but before you've swung into actually being uh, away from God and God has kind of turned you over to that waywardness. So the operative part of this is faith. The operative part of this is disciplines. The operative part of this is obedience. The best time to obey God is, is when the circumstances are least urgent. That might not hold true in all settings, but understand what I mean by this. The best time to obey God is, is when the circumstances possibly seem least urgent. Why? Because that's the moment that you keep choosing to stay on the right path or the narrow path. And if you grow complacent, 
in that moment, you might set yourself on a trail to going away from God or serving other gods. So complacency is the big lesson we kind of learned from Samson. And I think it's one of the lessons we've learned in our own lives or just watching the mistakes of others. When should we obey God? Now, okay, okay, well, but what should I do about this situation? Obey God. Like, it's, it's really simple, but it's the discipline of faith that we undertake as Christians. It's that we've paid a cost by saying we're not going to run our own lives and follow our own ways. The cost we've paid is to be literally a slave to Christ or a servant to Christ, that we go where he goes. He's our master. He's our, our Lord. He is the one that we follow. And so Christ is not going to lead us into waywardness. Christ is going to lead us into righteousness. So this whole discipline is not just knowledge of faith. It's not just talking about what we could do or ought to do. Faith really is the discipline of daily choosing to walk where Christ leads. That's the first lesson from Samson. And that if we don't do that, we are going to fall into places where the proverb, a man's, folly, a man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Um, I read that in my early 20s, and I looked at it, and it was one of those things where you read something, and you just go, yep, yep, <laughs> I learned that one. I wish I had have known it sooner, but I'm, I am the best in the world. There's nobody better at ruining my life than me. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, a man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. How did you let me get here? Why did you do this? Why didn't you intervene? How come that person gets to have these blessings? And we're, we're filled with bitterness until the point we bend a knee and we submit and we go, you know what, God, can you lead me out of this pit? And that's the second thing. The second thing from the life of Samson is that God is faithful. God is faithful um, to always be willing to hear our call. And in this story, in a really interesting way, God is always faithful to let us have a fresh start with, with who he has called us or designed us to be. I don't care who you are this morning. If you're single or if you're married, if you're a parent or if you're not, if you... Uh, work in the for-profit business sector or the not-for-profit business sector, if you go by a blue collar or a white collar, whatever God made you to do in this world, the thing that you know you were supposed to do, the people you know you were supposed to serve, the things you know you're supposed to influence, the, the big commitment that you feel like has always been there that at some point you're supposed to jump into. Here's the reality. If we miss the turn in the road, if we screw it up, it's always like Siri, just rerouting, 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 rerouting. And that, that at, at, at any point, even like Samson at the end of his life, or the prodigal son when he turned and came back to the fodder, or uh, Peter when Peter had rejected Christ and Jesus takes him out and says, let's start this again. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? All right, start over. 
Now go feed my sheep. There's always the grace of God that can take any one of us, even the chief of sinners. It's John Newton's song, Amazing Grace, came out of this, this place where he was like, I've been a slave ship captain that didn't care about it at the time and was a part of and, and probably even directly hands-on involved with some of the greatest atrocities that would happen aboard slave ships. And that when he changes and comes out of that, there's no wonder that he's writing a song called Amazing Grace and that, that it's so powerful that we still sing it today, right? No matter what happens, no matter how far you wander, God will always step back in and allow you to restart. It doesn't mean the consequences go away. It doesn't mean Samson gets his eyesight back. It means that God will meet you where you're at and that there is grace enough for you to start over. That's why we pray the Psalms. And over and over, the Psalms remind us that God alone can get us or lift us out of the pit. And he can set our foot on, on a, a sure rock and he can be for us the foundation that there's really nowhere else that we can look to for that kind of salvation. And we get this out of the book of Judges. Um, this need to not be complacent and to not play games with our faith, to not see how close we can get to the line and dance around it, but to just say, my life is yours, Lord, and I'll follow you. And secondly, um, I'm probably going to mess this up. And I know you know that. And I know you know it better than I know it. So God, let me understand the riches of your grace. That I wouldn't become proud. That I wouldn't wallow in shame. That I wouldn't be slow to, to ask for forgiveness. That I would always remember Christ when I come to the table that he died, his blood for the forgiveness of my sins, his body broken for me, that he is the ultimate judge, commander, savior that can always remind me of my freedom in Christ. I am free in Christ, Galatians 5.13. It is for freedom that you've been uh, set free. So don't use your freedom any longer to gratify the sinful nature. It is for freedom that you've been set free. It is by grace that you've been set free. Live in that freedom. So last word, and then I'm going to close for us. If you're here this morning and your life is a mess, um, then I've got good news for you. I've got really good news for you. Um, at any moment here, you can just turn your eyes uh, upward and begin a conversation with a God who forgives, with a God who loves, with a God who delights to redeem and to restore and to empower. So please um, take that step. We're going to have people at the exit signs that can pray with you. We're going to have worship. You can just sit there and listen and worship or pray. Uh, or you can come and partake of the Lord's Supper. We have the bread and the cup. And do this if you do it, not because of your religious purity, but because the fullness and the perfection of the grace that we have that was made available to us because of the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Would you pray with me? Father, we find ourselves in, in the stories of the Old Testament. We find ourselves in, in the picture of humanity. We find ourselves prone to wander. I pray that you would give us the strength to try to sustain and obey uh, before we get too far from you, that the consequences would affect our lives or the lives around us. And I pray that if we're experiencing those consequences of our decisions or our actions, that we would know you're not there to judge us, but the judgments of the Lord are, are delightful and sweet and beautiful. It's good news because it saves and it liberates and it restores. Father, we, we thank you for your grace that is plentiful right now here, even as we gather as your church. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.